Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This month our reviews include John Wick 4, The Whale and Pearl. Pearl? I see Jeff tried to sneak a horror film in. Nope, that was me this time. I assume you didn't watch it then, Graham. No, I didn't, and my therapist advised me it would be bad for my underwear. (laughs) Well, it is on the review schedule. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Graham. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on At The Flicks, you can find out more about my film tastes via my blog page on philverbearblog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at DazzleLovesMovie, and you can read my blogs at halfgarder.com. Hi, I'm Declan. You may remember me from podcasts such as Carry On Streaming, which I, I kindly did for At The Flicks. Yep, the check's in the post. Okay, some housekeeping before we begin. First step, thank you to our increasing list of Ukrainian listeners. We appreciate the support and At The Flicks certainly supports you. All we ask in return is you bag a Russian for us. Might have to take that one out, Jeff. Okay, and as a sign of solidarity, we ban Putin from receiving our show. Nice one, Graham. Now, another item on our housekeeping list. After the success of our first revamped review show, thanks everyone for the feedback, We have increased the number of films we're going to talk about. From now on, there will be five films selected. Under the new rules, the reviewer can select anything from a new release to classic film, just as long as the other reviewers get the opportunity to watch it. Like Graham did with Pearl. Unfortunately, Jeff will still be adding his ridiculous factual corrections to everybody's reviews. Yeah, it's not like him to annoy everyone. (laughs) Okay, enough of the banter. Let's start on the reviews. That's why I'm here. Okay. John Wick Chapter 4. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules, new management. We've known each other since we were nine Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Months after the events of John Wick Chapter 3, John Wick played once again by Keanu Reeves, is in hiding, slowly recovering from his injuries received in New York City. As soon as he is able, John starts his vengeance trail against the high table, striking first in Morocco. Meanwhile, the high table appoints the violent and sadistic Vincent de Gramont, played by Bill Skarsgård, with the task of finding and killing John Wick. For both sides, this is a battle to the death. Phil. How does this John Wick film compare to the others in the series? In prep for this film, I watched John Wick 1 to 3 on consecutive evenings in the lead up to the cinema release. And I've got to say that this is a tight matchup between the simplicity of the original film and this sheer epic masterclass that is the fourth in the series. I think I'd side with the first film as still the best, but 
I could probably be easily swayed that this is the best in the series. I'll set my stall out early and say that I think this is going to be one of the films of the year and it will be considered as one of the greatest action films in the genre. The fact that we've still got a Mission Impossible film to look forward to this year fills me with a lot of excitement because we could have two great action flicks this year. There's so much to wax lyrical about in terms of the brilliance of this film. I've got I've got a big list so you can kind of interrupt me as we as we go <laughs> along. So the first thing I wanted to say is that as a film that may well be the completion of the series, it does an exemplary job of completing Wick's ascendancy to a god. So as the series has gone on, he's referred to as the Baba Yaga and the Boogeyman. And as they progressed, Wick has just become more and more invincible. Uh, at this point, there's nothing that he can't handle. Bullets, cars, you name it, falling off huge buildings and rolling down many, many steps. But he always manages to incite fear in his enemies and respect in his allies. Do you not find that whole concept a bit irritating? Well, the invincibility. Yeah, I enjoyed the first film because it seemed like he wasn't. And it seemed more realistic. Whereas, as you say, as it's gone on, he's become almost like a Thor-type character, like an indestructible supervillain. All it takes is one bullet to the head and he's dead. And it's almost like no one can shoot. Yeah, but it's fine because he always holds his suit jacket slightly high above his face, doesn't he? I know, but it, not not while he's fighting. All someone's got to do is get a sniper rifle, <laughs> aim at his head and shoot him. You know, I could do it. I'd, I'd get them 50 million and tomorrow I'm not even that good a shot and I'm sure I can hit him in the head. <laughs> So, Deck, what you're saying is you'd go up against John Wick. From a long distance with a high-power rifle. Yes. Yes, he can't see me, but I can shoot him, definitely. Don't miss is all I'll say. So well, I'd I've... just like to put £100 on John Wick against... <laughs> yeah. He can't see me. He can't see me. He's not going to know. So I've actually had this discussion with someone. I actually go to the cinema so much... There's a couple of other people at the cinema I go to who we kind of know each other by sight. And I was having a chat with one of them outside the cinema after Renfield the other night, and we were talking about John Wick. We talked about this whole bulletproofness and the fact that they've introduced the Kevlar suit. I think it was in the second film, I think they yes. introduced the Kevlar suit. I was saying, the thing is, you could kind of go, that's ridiculous, but let's face it, the high table and the markers and the you know, all the sort of mystique around the supernatural world of like, it, to me, it's like this is adjacent to reality, right? Because you've got this whole secret society and they pay with their little gold coins and all that sort of stuff. And I know it's a bit ridiculous, but for me, it kind of unlocks the ability to do this amazing stunt work and have these amazingly over-the-top action scenes. If we had a bit more realism in there, yeah, the film wouldn't be two hours, 49 minutes long, would it? <laughs> it would be like 20 minutes. So, yeah, I, I I understand why some people wouldn't like it. But I think that in a world where there's continental buildings dotted across the globe and weird hit lists being put out on old fashioned telephones with some sort of 1920s receptionist ladies or whatever they are you can just go along with the fact that they've got bulletproof Kevlar suits and uh, they're invincible. It's fine. <laughs> I did enjoy it. I just found, I just enjoyed the first one immensely more, I think, than any of the other three. Like I said at the beginning, the first one is so much more simple, right? It's, a, you know, it's a very much purer version of it and they've kind of added layers and layers of complexity on. So I do still have a soft spot for the first one as possibly being the best for that reason, really. I don't know. I, I 
thought a lot about this, and I think this is the best of the series, the more I think about it. I, I agree. I really, really enjoyed this. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, and, and any film that references the Warriors has got to be good. Yes. You warned me in advance about that, didn't you? And it was, uh, when, the, when the radio clicked on, I was like, yeah, that's impressive. It's fun. And then the use of the Martha Reese song, Nowhere to Run. So the next thing I was going to talk about was the visuals. So you mentioned, obviously, it starts in Morocco, almost like a video game. It kind of has different levels, right? You have Osaka, which is kind of bathed in neon light and just looks absolutely fantastic. You've got Berlin that features a club that has waterfalls as walls, um, which is just logistically insane, but cool, right? And then in Paris, you've got them fighting through cultural landmarks at dawn. Each kind of section of the film looks sort of thematically different. And it's kind of like, you know, the next level up of his sort of fight to the end boss, which I'm sure a lot of people also dislike. And the one thing I will say, because I am going to rave about how amazing this is all the way through, is for, for context, my wife refused to watch this because she thinks they're just absolutely boring twaddle because all that happens is the same thing over and over and over again. That's my effort at balance. <laughs> yeah, but Chapter 3 was like that. I thought Chapter 3 had a really good action scene in the beginning where he's on horseback fighting the motorcyclists. And then after that, it just became dull and very gamey. This had... it just staggered the fight scenes and the action scenes in a way you know i mean he fought that guy from the whale in one scene in the berlin sequence i'm gonna to get to that and, but yeah no it's great loved it that was jeff keying me up i was gonna talk about the villains because for me a lot of the time in these sort of action flicks and stuff they're only as good as the villains right so john wick is invincible as we discussed so he's got to have some fun villains to fight against and I think this film really, really like nails it. So you've got a really diverse range. You mentioned at the top, you've got Bill Skarsgård as this slimy, threatening big bad Brilliant. who like physically isn't a threat necessarily, but his power and like you know all everything around him that he surrounds himself with with is the threat. You've got this new actor. I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong. I think it's Shamir Anderson who plays a tracker, which is, again, it's a new thing in the Wick universe. They only refer to him as a tracker, and it's kind of like, ooh, it's a tracker. But he's Mr. Nobody. He's got a dog. He's got a dog. <laughs> yeah, so, so he's got an, an attack dog as well, which I thought had a brilliant, I'm not going to ruin this, but it's a brilliant reference to like the whole thing that kicked off the Wick four films with this guy's dog. Jeff's favourite. Scott Adkins is unrecognisable as the club owner called Killer. Anybody who likes a good B-movie kung fu action flick will absolutely know who Scott Adkins is. Uh, that'll be Darren then. Yeah, I saw, <laughs> I saw him nod as I said that. Um, Scott Adkins has probably been in 40, 50 martial arts films. Darren, probably correct me. Have you got a number, Darren? <laughs> uh, something like that, yeah. And I thought he was brilliant in this. He's completely unrecognisable, right? Like, so this is a guy who's super fit, athletic, you know, great build. And they stick him in a fat suit with some bling all on his teeth. He does a ridiculous accent. I thought he was hilariously funny. Yeah. But he can handle himself, right? So when they have the fight scene, he really does the business and, you know, really fits the bill. And I just thought it was a really cool and interesting sort of way to have another villain that be a bit different. If I can just jump in here with, with, the, with the Scott Atkins thing. I heard that Scott Atkins was in this film. 
and I got so excited because I thought well, there's going to be a Scott Adkins versus John Wick fight. This is going to be awesome. And then when I actually saw what he actually was, for a split second, I thought, because I, I didn't recognise him at first. And then there was just this one little bit where he just smiled and I thought, oh, God, that's that's him in a fat suit. And for a split second, I was disappointed because I'd lost the, my dream fight. But he was playing the role so well as this fat guy that I just basically yes. just sort of went into that. And then we did actually get, even though it wasn't the sort of, the all-out fight that I expected. We still got, you know, a Scott Adkins versus John Wick fight. For for us um, action film fans, that was kind of like a, a bit of a, a dream matchup for us. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, and I, I did. I thought he pulled it off brilliantly. And they had axes as well, didn't they? Axes. What an awesome way to fight. I like that. Darren's right because when I saw Scott Adkins appear. I just assumed, actually, oh, he's char- he's just going to be a talking character. He just wanted to be in a Wick film. Yes, he'd already he's already said that he wanted to be in a Wick film. And when I saw him, I thought, oh, he's just going to be a talking character. So actually, that almost made the fight better for me because not only did they then have the fight, but yeah, he properly yeah, it wasn't like some fat guy will like lumbering around. It was somebody who really knew what he was doing. So I was really impressed with that. So is that Donnie Yen a stuntman as well then? For me, he's the star of the baddie group, right? So he plays the blind swordsman uh, who's got a history with Wick and he's superb. But no, Donnie Yen is a you know, seasoned, I think he's Chinese actor, isn't he? So he's again, I haven't looked, but I suspect if you go on IMDb, he's probably got over 100 credits to his name. Darren will know. Oh, I mean, well, Johnny Yen's been like going for for years. He, he was around like doing like films back in the mm. Jackie Chan era. His, his list will be massive. Yeah, they pulled like two big name um, martial arts stars from sort of different parts of the globe and put them in to the Wick universe. And I thought they were brilliant. And again, it's that sort of thing of Wick's this impossible to kill god. So you've got to have interesting, exciting guys up against him, right? You can actually, for a second, believe that they might beat him. Yeah. The final thing I wanted to talk about was just how amazing the action sequences are. For me, they're just jaw-dropping and utterly brilliant. So we mentioned the running time. It was It's 169 minutes. There's plenty to take in. And director Chad Stileski, I think that's how you pronounce his name, I think he's only directed Wick films, and he used to be a a stunt coordinator, I believe. Essentially, he just makes sure that every highlight of every one of the other films appears here. So you've got horse chases, car chases, motorcycle chases, guns, knives, swords, nunchucks, Declan mentioned axes. It's nice to see nunchucks on uh, on a UK screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time ever, because they were banned, weren't they, for a long time? The famous Bruce Lee film that never saw like the screen for a long, long time, isn't it? Yeah. But the thing for me that I love about the action scenes in the Wick films, and I probably, if you read my blog, you see me moan about this in a lot of um, American action flicks, is they get it right. They've got long, sustained sequences, amazing stunt choreography. The proficiency is just ridiculous. You always know where every character is. You always know what is happening. There's no confusion or chop, 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 cut, 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 uh, and just kind of like, let's just blow your mind by just sort of throwing loads of different visuals at you. It's just a masterclass in how to do it. And the sequence that I loved the most was they have an overhead 
photography oh, shot yes. um, in a sort of abandoned building, which again, for me, was like really reminiscent of a, a video game. Um, and I think there's like an isometric wick um, phone game that uh, that kind of apes a little bit as well. But yeah, so overall, it's just absolutely wonderful. What I was going to end with, because, you know, we've got this 59-year-old action god that is Keanu Reeves. How does he look that good? How does he do all that stuff? Uh, and my question to you at this point is, what is Keanu Reeves' most iconic character? Because you've got Johnny Utah from Point Break, Jack Traven from Speed, Neo from The Matrix, and now John Wick. And for me, you know, it doesn't matter what else he's done in his career. He is an action god at this point. <laughs> I, I agree with you on that sequence, the overhead one. I thought that was one of the best shots in the whole film. And I, it, it made me think, why have not more people not done that in action films? Because it exactly. worked really well. And it showed the, where all the uh, people were in the thing and where John Wick was and how they were getting closer to him as they were coming around the corner and what he had to face so you had that trepidation of knowing what's coming up but of course you know he's going to deal with it but I thought it was really really clever little scene apparently um the director used to be his stunt double okay there's so many cool stories you know sometimes his gun jams and he does that thing where he clears the chamber and reloads and all those sorts of things some of those you know are not scripted that just happened and Reeves is so good at like handling those weapons he just did it because that's how you clear a chamber and they just carried on and leave it in the film because it makes him look good at what he does. Shame they didn't do that on Rust. Right. <laughs> oh! Which has started filming again, I think, today, Yes, I it? saw that, yeah. Um, God. Okay, well, I think it's uh, very positive from the whole panel there. So is this the action film of the year? I think it'll be hard to beat, although, as Phil said, Mission Impossible's coming and... Mission Impossible, yeah. So drop us a line, please, and let me know what you think. Uh, coming up, we have to Leslie, 65 and Pearl. But next, we go to Deck and his choice of the month, the Oscar-winning The Whale. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Who would want me to be a part of their life? Why'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away, and it had an effect on me. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old, and you're going to reconnect with her? Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time, I will shove a knife right into you. I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in, at least. Why do you suddenly need to see her so bad? Why now? Yes. that she's forgotten what an amazing person she is. I need to know that I have done one thing right with my life. The latest film from director Darren Aronofsky, who previously made such controversial and hard-hitting movies as Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. Charlie, played by Brendan Fraser, is a man who has become morbidly obese following a tragedy in his life. Now he lives alone in his apartment, unwilling or unable to leave, with just occasional visits from his nurse and only friend Liz, played by Hong Chao. However, time is not on Charlie's side. Because of his physical condition, he's dying. 
Before he departs this life, he wants to reconcile with his estranged and bitter daughter. Will there be enough time? So, Deck, Brendan Fraser won the Best Actor Oscar for his performance as Charlie. In your opinion, did he deserve it? I think he did. I do think he did. I went into this film knowing that he'd won, so I was expecting it to be a good performance and it didn't let me down. I know it's had a lot of criticism, but it had me engaged all the way through. Not for a second did I drift off. Not only was Brendan Fraser's performance brilliant, but I thought he was supported superbly by Hung Chow. It's an emotional journey that you're taken through on the film. I don't know if other people experience this, but your feelings towards Charlie change mm. as the film progresses. I, I wasn't too happy with the beginning, Deck. I've got to be quite honest. Exactly. No, but that's the point. You go in and you're at the lowest point. You see him at the lowest point. You think, oh, my God, that's disgusting. And you just think he's vulgar. And, and you, you, everyone watches that and you almost you imagine it and you just almost look away. And then in the early parts of the film, you see him eat and it's disgusting the way he eats and you see him sweating, you see him trying to move. You have no respect for this man at the start. You just think, oh my God, he's just a horrible, you know, why is he like that? But as the film progresses, you find out more about Charlie's life and his backstory, sometimes told through the other characters in the film. Your knowledge increases and you begin to understand why he's like the way he is. I think there's some important messages in this film, and I think one of the first messages that I got from it is it teaches you to look past your first impression. So we all do it. It's human nature. We see someone and we, we, we form an impression in our, in our minds. And when I first saw Charlie in this film, I formed an impression of him, and I didn't like him. But really, once you get to know the person underneath, your views change and your feelings change. Also, he's a saint compared to that daughter of his. Yeah, that's true. I agree, it is similar to Aronofsky's previous film, The Wrestler, especially with the whole father-daughter relationship. I was really surprised when I found out that this was written by a playwright. It's a successful play, it's been around for ages, because it just feels like a typical Aronofsky film, because you've obviously mentioned the father-daughter, The Wrestler situation, but there's also a strong element of religious, about the guy who comes in and is like sort of trying to sell his religion and the connection to religion in his backstory. And obviously Aronofsky's films in general feature religion heavily. So it's just the fact that this wasn't his film. It's just the perfect you know, subject matter for him because it obviously has that father-daughter element that he is interested in and the, the sort of religious element that he's interested in. I think that's why it was so good for him to make it. Yeah, I agree. I did think Sadie Sink's character, Ellie, um, is probably the weakest character in the film. And some of her actions seem unusual and a bit forced. And I don't know if that's the actress or the writing, or maybe that's just how teenage life is really, in that it, it looks forced and it just seems unusual because they do crazy things. I don't know. It just it's the only fault I could find with the film really is it just it, it seemed a bit off kilter with the rest of it. I've read many reviews and it could be accused of being over sentimental. It could also be accused that the fact it's filmed on one location, much like the father was in previous years, gives it a play-like feel. But I think the central dynamic between Charlie and his carer, Liz, is the heart of the film and it keeps it moving along as Charlie's health decreases. I admit it, like a lot of people in the screening that I was in, I was sobbing at the end of it. I think a lot of people are. And I think even if you, you know, people who don't like this film are still moved by it. I think that's, that's the key to this. What did you think of it technically, though? I mean, I love the fact that you've taken a play, you're not really opening it out. In fact, by using a 4-3 ratio, you're making it even more claustrophobic. 
and I thought that really worked in its favour. Yeah, I quite like that. I mean, I think people have said they should have taken it out and they should have taken it no. elsewhere, but I don't. I think it worked perfectly. Yeah, I think the point is that he is isolated, and and by isolating him further, you really get a sense of that. The other thing I I loved is the two editions. So apparently, the playwright who was involved didn't know that Aronofsky was going to add that ending. So obviously. In the play, there was no flashback and the final sequence, which I won't spoil, which but I thought was transcendent, doesn't doesn't happen in the play. But again, because I think Aronofsky was so perfect for the material, I think it worked just just brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. Mentioned the the final scene, and I, I feel really bad about saying this, but I nearly found it funny. <laughs> that it's and I'm not and I feel bad for saying it, but the um for, I mean, for a start it it, it pretty much copied the uh, the wrestler because if you look at the ending to the wrestler and the wheel, it's the same ending where just as he's about to die, he kind of leaps upwards. But the whole thing is he's sort of getting up. It just it reminded me and if I'd seen this film after the the wheel, I would have sworn it was a parody. The scene in Deadpool two where Ryan Reynolds has got the little baby legs and he's trying to walk with them. And that's, that's how I, felt. I just, I just felt that ending just, just, it just looked ridiculous. And I get, I get, I'm sorry. I get where it was coming from. I get what he's trying to do. It's this moving my like, moment of him finally thing. It, but I just thought it just looked funny. Yeah. But I think what you're, what you're saying is, is what Dex said at the front, right? Because I've read lots of reviews of this film and it's quite a Marmite film. And there's quite a lot of people who, did find it over the top and sort of ridiculous and like that's an example of that right and there are other things that I think you could easily have had that opinion of so I don't think it's silly to think that because it's clearly you know it can kind of go either way clearly I've got to say that um the only reason actually and we're watching this film was for this show is it's one that I kind of wasn't that bothered about seeing because one of the reasons was it and, and this is coming from me, who is a very sentimental person who gets teared up quite easily. I mean, just the other week, I, I cried my eyes out of the last episode of David, Daisy Jones and the Six. So I'm somebody whose who's heartstrings, it's really easy to tug on. But in this case, I felt, and it was what I was worried about going in, but it felt really sort of over the top in its sentimentality. It's like, you know, the big speeches that it kept doing and things like that. It, it, you know, for, for me, I, I did find it just a, bit too um a bit too melodramatic in places and it was moving and don't get me wrong the performances were, were great but i did feel that some of this the script and, and this, this speeches and that it just felt like just sort of getting too a little sentimental for me i just found it a bit too too forced to be honest i think that's the case because i think that's it's play aspect right because plays are different to films generally right they're always um what i find with a play is that um there's a desperate need to kind of like you know you're making a point there's always subtext you have like these big grandiose moments and they don't necessarily translate to the subtlety of having a film camera do a close-up right because you're sitting 50 feet away from the actor doing that scene so i think that that's a a fair point and something that happens often when you watch a play that's being put on screen. I found that a lot of the times when we adapt a play into, or, or don't adapt it as a case in, 
point is that they don't adapt it into like a, a into a movie. They keep like you know the script elements a lot. I felt the same way about Fences, that Denzel Washington movie. It felt like you were watching a play on screen. I think sometimes they could do with basically just like you know adapting it more to make it a little more film like as opposed to like that stage play. Exactly. Now that's really interesting. I agree with Darren a hundred percent with Fences. But I don't agree with this. I thought they did everything they could to make it look like a play to close in the world. But I agree with you completely on fences. It, it just, it just didn't work for me like this one did. But that's why Jeff agrees with me that Ryan Gosling is one of the greatest screen actors because he does the close-up stuff and the the nuance, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see him playing a plastic doll. Sorry, Darren, you were saying. Just one thing I just want to point out. I thought the score was great. Yes. Really did like the score. Yes. Yeah, score's great. Yeah, I've listened to it a couple of times. It's very good. Back to you for final word then, Deck. It is your review. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. No, it's, all, it's, all, it's all interesting points. To finish off, I just think the important message I got from this film, and similar to the film we're going to discuss in a bit to Leslie, is that how close we all are to one life-changing event becoming more like Charlie or Leslie. You know, not everything in life goes to plan. And I'm sure if you'd asked Charlie earlier in his life, he would have said he would never get to that state and he would never let things get that bad. But these things happen. And I did read one review that I thought summed it up perfectly, this film for me. And that was family is hard, forgiveness is hard, life is hard, but it can be so beautiful if we let it. That to me summed up this film in that life is tough, but let's live it and make the most of it and look for the beautiful elements of it. Perfect ending. So that was The Whale, which overall we liked, but as you can see, we had a bit of a discussion about it. Now, the film has generated a lot of woke controversy. Ignore it. It's well worth seeing. Let's turn to our next film, the horror movie, Pearl. I'm worried there may be something real wrong with me. Rumour has it they only take one gal per town. We're looking for someone with X Factor. Has to be me. How about a film nobody else has seen? Is it legal? Will be eventually. I know what I've done. Bad things. Terrible, awful, murderous things. I want to be loved from as many people as possible. But truth is, I'm not really a good person. The prequel to last year's hit horror movie, X, which can currently be found on Amazon Prime if you're that way inclined, Graham. No, I'm not. If you wondered why Pearl, played by British actress Mia Goth, ended up a psychotic old woman, then look no further to this movie for the answers. Set in 1918, during the global pandemic, we find the young Pearl living in a remote Texas backwater. Her only escape from her dull and at times oppressive life is the local picture house. She dreams of becoming a movie star. However, there are already signs of the disturbed killer she is destined to become. Darren. We've had to wait a long time for this film in the UK. Was it worth it? Absolutely worth the wait. And to be honest, I was uh, quite lucky that I didn't have to wait as long as uh, a lot of people because I managed to see it a couple of weeks early before it came out of the UK. It was actually on the plane that I saw it. 
So I did see it on a really tiny little screen, but it's a, it's really a testament to the film. But even though it was on such a small screen, I still didn't feel cheated by the cinematography or everything like that. It looked absolutely wonderful. I just had a sort of amazing time watching this little film. And it was a, a real treat when I went through all the films and saw that that one was, um, was, was on there. The thing about this film is I saw this quote in a review and I wish I could have come up with this myself. And it basically called Pearl the godfather tool of slasher movies. And it is so absolutely oh, true. Because, wow. yeah, because <laughs> this is basically fits into this, uh, what we know now as the uh, as the X trilogy. But the probably horror movies and prequels is uh, a lot of time, they're just, they're just cash-ins. They're there to sort of try and explain how a, a character became this like sort of evil monster. And the thing about it is, it, uh, what we're telling you to do about, like with, um, for example, um, the, the Hannibal uh, Rising film uh, in The Silence of the Lambs, it, it really sort of robs a character of the mystery and the, and the uncertainty. But here it works so well because I don't think you can even call Pearl a straight prequel you know to me it's part of a planned out trilogy and it's just that this episode happens to be set before the first episode I think Pearl works on its own anyway it's got such a great character and she's absolutely terrifying but she, you've also got a lot of sympathy for her because when you actually meet her it, it's clear that she's that she's bordering on going insane uh, because her only companions, really, she, she has a family that are sort of quite aloof. Her, her really only companions are her animals and a, uh, and a wild alligator that she feeds. She has a husband who may be coming back from the war at some point, or, or, may, or maybe not like many didn't. And her only sort of intimacy is having sex with a, with a scarecrow. What? Yeah, bet you wish you watched it. No, Graham. <laughs> what? Graham's face. See, Wizard of Oz, Graham, but a bit different. It is the Wizard of Oz. The whole thing is the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the reason is this, because um, of the absolute isolation that she's had to go through for, since childhood. It's been inflicted on her. For a start, she has a mother who's basically trying to keep her away from all the, uh, you know, all the other people in a small town that she lives in. She's living in a really remote village in rural life anyway. And it's at a time when America's gripped in um, in a pandemic anyway, which, like all the best horror movies, makes it something that we can sort of relate to today. You've just got this absolutely great character. But the real tipping point is actually when she finds a way to escape from the existence that she's got. And she basically does that by, by through movies. And she decides that she wants to be a star. She finds this as a creative way to express herself and also to get out of this, this, this small town that she's in. But you know that this is just not going to happen. Even though she, she, she has these dreams and she has this like, wonderful fantasy scene where she's um, trying out for this, um, this audition for, for it to be a star. And it all comes crashing down on her. And that's the moment when she really becomes her when she really goes insane and it's funny that the um the one time when she actually see her acting not like because she's very childlike throughout the film but the time when she actually starts to act like an adult is when she goes on this um kill crazy rampage when she starts killing people that's when she has this sort of mature stature about her and i think it's absolutely fascinating the growth that we uh 
we, we get with her. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful film. And the final scene as well, when she sees her husband come back, and the smile on her face, I, I would. it reminded me afterwards, because Pearl's one of these films that I've thought a lot about since. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. The thing that it was sort of reminded me of was Bob Oshkins in The Long Good Friday. That sort of scene right at Ooh. the end where and he goes through all this mm. gauntlet of emotions and she does the same thing as well because she on the one hand she's got this like look of joy but also this look of terror and this look of being upset and distressed all mixed in at once and i think it's absolutely amazing acting i think mia goff is absolutely wonderful in this film she's scary but you, you know you, you always kind of have a bit of sympathy for her visually i think this film is stunning it's got these like you know really bright colors and you mentioned the wisdom of us because it comes from that sort of idyllic um, nostalgic thing we have for sort of that period of america which probably never existed i'm I'm pretty sure and hers going slowly crazy is just an absolutely great contrast the thing about pearl even though it does i think work on a film all by itself is it's really worth watching x first and also watching x after because there's so much that the two films tie into each other this was to me was always meant to be a trilogy it wasn't like a sort of a cashing on the success of x this is how it was always meant to be because both films even though they're set in uh, different eras they're both about the movie industry and specifically the porn industry and the how how porn had an effect, you know, in Pearl, it's how porn had an effect, um, even more called stag movies then, on the development of uh, of cinema. And later on, how, uh, you know, it, again in the 70s and coming onto the video era, how again it sort of had an effect there. Mia Goff plays both the character in X, Maxine, and she plays Pearl. You get references when you rewatch X, when, when Pearl says to her that they're both the same people. I mean, literally, it's the same actress playing both roles. And there's all little Easter eggs throughout X as well. For example, um, Pearl makes a mention that she hates blondes, which, uh, you know, in Pearl, you find out why that is. It's really fabulous that, you know, what they've actually done by this. And, and, it's, and it's weird because as I'm talking about it, I'm talking about as if X happened afterwards. When, when obviously it's not, we, we, saw, we saw Pearl afterwards, but they've sort of done it so well. It just it moves so smoothly. I mean, I think this is actually one where I think you should always watch films in the way that they're, that they're, they're made in shot. You should never watch a prequel before you watch the original films. But I think this is one film mm. where, although you should watch X first and then watch Pearl, I think you can actually later watch pearl and then watch x it mo- you know you, you, i think you would get a different experience but i think it would still work and i just can't wait until we get maxine because if if maxine is ties things together i have a few theories of why mia goff is actually playing both characters i think i think there is possibly a connection with them that might come up in maxine but if they hit the um, hit the lander with maxine i think this could have this could be one of the greatest horror trilogy of all time but i think actually one of the greatest movie trilogies of all time i think pearl is an absolutely wow. stunning movie okay well i haven't seen it unfortunately but Phil and deck you have i mean that's high praise what do you say to that so the thing that Darren said that I really, really agree with is about the the bit where he said the more he's thought about it after watching it, the more he's liked it. So I think 
so when I watched it, I enjoyed it, but I think X is better. And as I thought about it, I've actually found myself enjoying it more on an intellectual level for all the things that Darren just said about how they tie together, but not necessarily as a viewing level. So I enjoyed watching it, but actually I've much more enjoyed thinking about the connections and how those two things come together. And I really thoroughly agree with what Darren said, that if Maxine can connect to the other two films in as clever a way as these two films connect, I think it will be really quite something as a trilogy piece rather than as kind of like three separate films. Maybe I need to watch Pearl again. And I, I it's weird to say this. I did really enjoy it. I did really like the film, but I didn't enjoy it as much as X, which kind of kind of hampered it as I was watching it. Um, I loved the Wizard of Oz elements and I loved Mia Goff's performance. And that final scene you mentioned, the smile, um, I was telling Graham and Jeff this recently. I watched that Jean Dillman film that was number one sight and sound, best film of all time, etc. And I was explaining the final shot of that is essentially about eight minutes of the camera just looking at Jean Dillman as she reacts to what happened. And I think it was about 30 seconds or so of Mia Goff. And I thought that she was doing just as good a job as the greatest film of all time in that sort of 30 <laughs> seconds as they did in about eight minutes of Jean Dillman. I might be over-exaggerating that. But that was, yeah, that was my thoughts. Wow. I preferred this over X. I mean, X X was a good film, but to me it just seemed nothing over-special in terms of horror films I've seen in the past. It was good. It's a very good horror film, but I wouldn't rate it above some of my favourites. But what I really liked is is Pearl because to me it wasn't a horror film. I don't know. I don't know how you can class it even as a horror film because there's 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 scarier elements probably in John Wick than there are in Pearl. It's it's not scary at all. Honestly, Graham, it's not scary at all. The Easter eggs bits were brilliant. Like Darren, I'm interested to know had they written like all three and they filmed them in that way, or as I suspect, I just think they'd be really clever in they've given it the same location and then it's easy to to then say, okay, that happened, let's reference that, that happened, let's reference that. And and because it's already happened, it's easy to reference back. And and I love that element. I love the fact that, I mean, you don't have to see X before seeing this, but I just love the fact that you went, ah, that bit, oh, yeah, I can see that bit. And, you know, the barn, the bit in the barn and the crocodile and, and so many things I just thought was you were constantly spotting things and, and, and seeing things that you thought, oh, that explains. And I thought that was brilliant. And I thought the whole Wizard of Oz uh, the fonts they use, the score that goes with it, the the colour, um, the way she sort of skips around. It was so, so hark back to that sort of golden American dream age of, you know, and the fact that they even reference blondes is because, you know, it's the perfect American person is a, is a, is a blonde girl sort of thing. And I thought it was fantastic. And it, it sort of was like uh, Dorothy for this century, really, because, uh, you know, she had the same sort of ambitions as, as Dorothy might have done, but obviously a bit twisted. Um, so, yeah, I just, I absolutely loved Pearl. And I think as, as a standalone film, someone like Graham could watch Pearl. I wouldn't recommend you watch it. You probably wouldn't enjoy that. But I think as a standalone <laughs> film, I think you can watch Pearl and you can see all the references to the old films, the old American films, and you can enjoy it. And there is no horror in it that I can find. I think the there's nothing scary there's a little there's a little bit of blood when she kills one of the people but that's it but no i thoroughly enjoyed this and as you say i thought about it more uh, since watching it 
I'm a bit worried about Maxime because I think they're probably going to leave the farm because I can't see what else they can do. And then I'm worried about where they're going to take it and how they're going to how they're going to link it up. And if they are clever, it'll be brilliant. But I'm just not sure it will be. But I will definitely watch it. I can't not watch it after seeing these two films. So on the note of the writing, um, I don't think that they were written as a trilogy, but I think that Pearl and Maxine were written together. So my understanding is Ty West wrote X and signed on Mia Goth, obviously, to play that dual role. Pearl was co-written Ty West and Mia Goth. So I suspect that what's happened is, is they've done that film together and whatever spark of creative genius between those two creatives together has then kind of spurred this actually you know we've we can talk about the 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 way that pearl became you know how she became and what would then go on to happen to maxine and that sort of thematic link i don't think that takes anything away from how brilliant the sort of two link together and actually it's for me it kind of comes back to all those sort of conversations we've had about directors having kind of muses in certain actors and clearly Ty West and Mia Goff together is something that has sparked some sort of creative genius to be able to get to this point. Final word to you, Darren. If you like text and, and after you've watched Pearl, you know, I will say watch X again because you'll, uh, you'll, you'll spot so many other things that invert. Right. A wonderful review. And it sounds like I'm missing out on not watching Pearl. Okay. I might give it a go. Up next is Jeff's selection. Like Dex Choice, another film that featured at this year's Oscars to Leslie. How does it feel to win such a life changing sum of money? Oh, well, I feel a a lot better than yesterday. <laughs> what do you plan to do with 190,000 smackaroos? I don't know. Maybe buy a house? Buy something nice for my boy, you know. Just have a better life. She blew all that money. Yeah. Yeah. Where's she been? I won the lottery. I was the one who won the lottery. Things don't go the same way for any two people, and I don't think any less of you for having the problems you do. Been down this road, not You know what? It's my life. I'm not gonna do this again. He ain't never gonna speak to me again. Try to be good, yeah, try to be real. Angels keep falling down on me. British actress Andrea Riseborough was Oscar nominated for her portrayal of troubled individual Leslie. Years ago, Leslie won the local lottery and planned to use the money for a better life for herself and her son. Leap forward to today and the money has long gone, with Leslie estranged from her family, an alcoholic, living a hand-to-mouth existence. With nowhere else to go, Leslie returns to her hometown, hoping to start again, but is it too late for her? Will she be able to give up her vices? Jeff, there was a lot of controversy about this Oscar nomination. Do you think Andrea Riseborough deserved it? Absolutely, Graham. I've been following Andrea Riceborough's career for years, but in a non-stalking way, I can assure you guys. And <laughs> yeah. it is exceptional. Films like Made in Dagenham, Brighton Rock, Oblivion and Mandy give you a few examples of how extraordinary her talent is. And here she ups her game once again, playing unpleasant Texan trailer trash while finding the real human underneath. 
someone we start off hating, but who we eventually come to like. It's an amazing performance. Perhaps the biggest surprise is that before the Oscar nominations, hardly anyone had ever heard of this film. It seemingly came out of nowhere and caused something of an awards panic when it did. Why? Because fellow actors recognised what this Newcastle lass had done within her performance and wanted her to be nominated. In my opinion, this is totally warranted. And as I said at the beginning, she should have won. To explore that comment further, for me, she gets into the soul of this deeply unpleasant character, an alcoholic who exploits everyone around her for that next drink or fix. At the start of the film, we see how Leslie destroys what little faith her son has left in her. He's excellently played by Owen Teague, who was also really good in the It movies a couple of years ago. Like all films of this nature, we watch as Leslie descends that path of self-destruction while exploiting those that try to help her. Again, as I said, Andrea Riseborough plays the role raw and uncompromising. You won't like her for most of the movie, but you will understand her. Jeff, I just want to say that I want to back you up on that. Her performance of an alcoholic was incredible. As you say, it was that addiction and that willing to do anything for the next drink. You could see it happening, couldn't you? She'd walk into somewhere and you knew how despicable her character was that she was going to do this and you were just waiting for it to happen. You know, you knew with her son when she first turned up, you're thinking it looked like maybe she had, you know, maybe she had, but you're thinking, no, there was this... You just knew something was going to happen. Uh, and the way she did it was brilliant. The way she was quite sneaky about it and uh, was fantastic. And, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I think the, the, the first half of this film definitely knocks it out of the park. And Owen Teague, you see that pain on his face. You know, when she goes off, when he catches her in the apartment down the hall, all of this sort of stuff. He's like, I'm trying. What else can I do? And I thought, yeah, incredible. But alongside Andrew Riceburn, we mentioned Owen Teague. It, there is an excellent supporting cast here. The marvellous and often underrated Stephen Root, so good in Barry, for example. Mm. Oscar winner Alice and Janney, who's almost unrecognisable in her role. And Mark Maron, who gives hope through a relationship that he has with Leslie. All are working at the top of their game. They collectively give life to that poor community. To Leslie shows how these communities bond together to overcome many of the hardships of life even through simple pleasures, and there's an extended fear sequence in the film that shows that. It's therefore ironic that the catalyst for all this misery was good fortune, being that lottery win. Through these occasional ups and very many downs, you get a little understanding of how the misfortune of these people can be exploited like by grifters like Donald Trump. But politics aside, because, you know, I like to go on about it, so I'll leave that for now. <laughs> wow. I- I have to admit that the plot itself, and Deck, you hinted at this, I think, in the second half of the film, it's not original. You could sketch out where it's going to go quite earlier on. You realise quite quickly that there must eventually be some hope for the lead character to turn a corner at some point. In many ways, this movie's a natural successor to the Robert Duval feature Tender Mercies, quiet people trying to overcome their struggles. Although that was one of Deval's more sympathetic roles during that period. Riseborough's, for the most part, is not. And of course, Duval won the Oscar for that movie. Can I jump in there, Jack? Because I was, yeah. I, I was thinking when we. So obviously, this wasn't planned, and this is just the way it kind of panned out. But the five films that we're talking about tonight 
all feature a stunning central performance, right? Like a a, a mm-hmm. central performance that kind of makes the film. So and 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 to some extent, even the film we're going to talk about after this, I think, is is the case here. That's a good point. My my only issue, and I watched this less than twenty four hours ago because I was a bit tardy on the watching films front. I loved Andrew Rice's performance. I think she's brilliant. And I think she, you mentioned she's brilliant. She's been brilliant for a long, long time. And um, mm. I know Jeff won't watch it, but if you haven't seen Possessor, which is a Brandon Cronenberg film, she's stunning in that. And it's an amazing film. Graham, don't watch it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Comes with a warning. Right. Okay. But because you kind of said about how the second half plays out, I do feel that if Andrew Riceborough was not there giving this amazing performance, that this film would have sunk, as you said, the top of the review. There's nothing in there that's wholly different to any other kind of worthy indie drama that you might have seen. And it is her performance that actually makes... And, I'm, and, and it makes it worth watching. She totally makes it worth watching. It's just that if they didn't have her doing this stunning performance... I think that it maybe would have just been another film that wouldn't necessarily have like kind of stuck its head above the parapet. I, I think that's a very fair point. And going back to Tender Mercies, if you take the valour of Tender Mercies, there's nothing there. No. But then I think Tender Mercies is a film that not many people today have seen. And I fear that the fate of To Leslie is exactly the same. It's going to drift into that obscurity of these sort of films. I think that's true. I think that if, if you go and look at the best actress nominees t- for 10 years ago, or, you know, in or, in or around there, I bet you'll find one of the five nominees, you'd be like, oh, what was that film? And I think that in 10 years' time, you know, they go, "What? here are the five nominees for best actress in 2023. Yeah. And there will be a lot of people who'll be like, what's to Leslie? I've not seen that. But, but in Duval's case, he actually won. And it's mm. still a film that yes. very few people today have seen. You know, and and that's Robert Duvall, possibly one of the greatest American actors of the last hundred years. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and it's I think it's a real shame. There are elements of her performance that you know, as you come on in the film, yes, you've got the template, but you're never a hundred percent quite sure how this is gonna gonna end. Her, you know, her mercurial performance, say, it doesn't necessarily say you're gonna have that happy ending. And there's a moment just before the end of the film where things aren't going well, where you think, oh, she's going to drift back. And it's a measure of the performance again. You hope she can keep those demons, pardon the pun, bottled up. Technical plaudits for director Michael Morris. He comes from a background of working in TV on such shows as Better Call Saul and For All Mankind. I think his pacing's not rushed. He allows the characters to breathe yet has this wonderful cinematic eye for those beautiful Texas locations. So, yeah, I like the film. I I accept all the reservations that we've got here, guys. But I think more recently it it runs a fair comparison with Nomadland. It's better than that. No, it's not, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, She's better than that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I mean, I was absolutely entranced by her and i really mean entranced i could not take my eyes off her 
She had those huge eyes that just were constantly moving. And she did that little sort of twitch all the time, that alcoholic twitch. And, and, and she was a bit too fast doing things. And I just found her absolutely fascinating fascinating and as you say the, the the bit where i thought this is going to go really dark because it starts dark and i thought oh this is going to go really dark where she goes into the bar and she orders the beer uh, and the shot and i thought oh no and i was really really on the edge of my seat then but she carried it off and i just think it's a phenomenal a phenomenal performance she's top of my list now of actresses to watch and keep an eye on. I just couldn't she, believe what she did. She makes a highly effective team. No one did anyone anyone get that by the way? No. She was in Oblivion with Tom Cruise. Oh yes. Uh, and the uh, the yeah. computer kept saying Thank that they're yeah, a highly, highly effective, effective team. team. Oh too clever a reference. Very there. good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Darren, you haven't said anything on this. Did you enjoy this film? I don't know if enjoy is quite the word um i thought it was i thought it was a great film i i, I don't think it's a film that it, it's a film that when it got to the end i liked what i had seen a tough film to get through but it, it should be a tough film to get to because the first half i was really frustrated with her because it's somebody on a um a self-destruct pattern things kept coming in a way that could give her a way out she wasn't taking i mean she was just sort of just messing up constantly all, all the time, and 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 I was frustrated and like you know angry over and and cheesed off with it. To be perfectly honest, I I lost my patience. But it's the sort of film where you have to go down to rock bottom for the film to to work. And for me, the film became more interesting in the second half when she started to try to pull her life together and had all those obstacles in her way, like that scene at the fairground. Yes. Mm. She started to make some headway, and it's like people are, are wanting to drag her back down, mocking her and making fun of her. And this is a, somebody who was on a, in a fragile journey. And the second half of the movie, I thought was uh, excellent. And the thing that I want to take away from, from this film is she so deserved to have that Oscar nomination. You know, there, there was so yep. I've I've seen so much crap from people, and you know, and people can take this for mm. for what it is about her getting a, a nomination, saying that you know it's something dodgy going on with because of all the support that she got at the last minute. They were basically just highlighting a small film that people, you know, and giving it a chance to be to to be seen. There would not be the outrage about this film if it wasn't for the fact that there were two uh, black actresses who basically didn't get nominations who were expected to. But the whole issue of, um, you know, Oscars be so white and that, but, and, you know, any time anything like this happens, there's going to be some sort of backlash. And it's it's not her fault. It's just, she was just sort of playing the game as, as any others. And to me, you know, she had a sort of, you know, just as valid a, um, a right to get a, a nomination as anybody else, you know, because her performance was great. That is a really good point. Because the two films you're talking about, one is an action film. Well, action films traditionally don't get nominated anyway. So I, uh, that was, I would say, the reason for that actress not getting nominated. The other was Till. And Till is, uh, it's all right. It's not that great a movie. It's nowhere near as memorable as to Leslie. I liked Till, but I didn't think it was Oscar worthy. No. Okay, well, I'll end with this point. 
The film is called To Leslie, and Leslie is spelt in the way a man's name is spelt as Leslie. Now, interesting um, trivia there. It's actually the way my wife's, who's also called Leslie, her name is spelt. Wow. Yeah, that's the that's almost the only similarity she has with the character in the film. Almost. <laughs> my only criticism of the film is the reason that she corrected her path was a song. And to me, that seemed a bit fanciful. You've railroaded over your son and your best friends and even the person who gives you a chance, you let him down. And then the one thing in, in life that makes you suddenly realise you've got to sort yourself out is the lyrics to a song. It just seemed a bit twee to me. And I thought, and I thought if this film wasn't an American film, if it had been a British film, that wouldn't have happened and she'd probably end up killing herself because that's how a gritty British film would have ended. And to me, that's almost more realistic. And I, in some ways, would have liked to have seen that more because, yeah, I did quite like the fact that, you know, not giving too much away, but the, the diner and everything. But I just thought the reason seemed a bit... I just think they could have found another reason maybe for, for her to think, I'm going to give this a go, rather than just the lyrics to a song. But I liked that. Her life was just so chaotic. It could be anything that that, mm. that gave her the nudge, because people certainly didn't religion didn't nudge. Yeah, and we had the point about the um, the boyfriend's first wife turned to religion, and then the um, the pastor took her away. I, I thought, why not? Why not? It be a song. Music is powerful force, and for somebody in such a strange position, it might have worked. I also thought this film reminded me a lot of the Florida Project. I don't know if anybody yeah, remembers yeah. that yeah, film. But yeah, yeah. I thought that was. Uh, I, I just yeah. loved it. Absolutely well, loved it. Going to watch it again. I mean, fantastic discussion, and I hope people are still talking about it like the way we're talking about it in five and ten years' time, and it hasn't been forgotten. No one would have seen it, Jeff. <laughs> I don't want to be cynical, but <laughs> we we've seen it, Phil. That's all we've seen it. That's all right. Five middle-aged white men. Good. <laughs> Who all should win awards. Um, yeah, four middle-aged white men and Jeff. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 108. Jeff just said about the spelling of Leslie. The, uh, my interesting fact for you is, did you know that Andrea Riseborough shares the same birthday as Jeff? Obviously, quite a few years later. Not that many. <laughs> while on the subject of age... The next film's title is the same age as Neil, 65. There's something alien out there. Location unknown. Charter 373. This is Commander Mills. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Transporting 35 passengers. On a long-range exploratory mission. Send help. A spaceship on a colonization mission is hit by an asteroid, forcing it to crash land on an unknown planet. Only the pilot Mills, played by Adam Driver, and a young girl called Koa, played by Ariana Greenblatt survive the only chance they have to get off this planet is to find the escape pod which broke away from their ship when they crashed to get to it they have to travel over some very inhospitable terrain the twist to this tale 
It's set 65 million years ago and the planet is Earth with a full and savage dinosaur population. Sounds like Planet of the Apes meets Jurassic Park. Graham, does it match either of those two films? When I was looking for a way to start my review, I was talking to Jeff and he came up with the phrase, 65, this is a classic B-movie. Now, I don't say this often, but I agree with Jeff. I know, shocker. You say it all the time. (laughs) However, that is exactly what it is. It's a schlocky, cheap, makeshift kind of a movie with a really good central character and some excellent moments. I must admit, uh, I was mostly entertained. Will this be in my top 10 movies of 2023? I very much doubt it. But if you want a fun sci-fi horror movie that does not stretch the intellect with grand ideas or concepts, then this is the movie for you. Uh, it's got some great jump scares, uh, not on the level of A Quiet Place, and certainly doesn't have the depth, character development, or tension of, of something like A Quiet Place, but it did make me jump a couple of times. Did it really, though? Did it really yeah. make you jump? I, I jumped twice in this. I jumped once, I think. I think oh, once no. I did. Oh, you missed one then. <laughs> I didn't jump <laughs> once in the latest Scream film, but in this I did. And did you yeah. not find the cheapness just get on your nerves? I was just so annoyed by it the... did a bit. The, the guns and everything looked like plastic ones that I buy from Poundland. I just thought... Uh, oh, it just annoyed me, I think. Right from the word go, I just it, thought... It's, that... it's a B-movie, Deck. You've got to go with a B-movie. I know, but it was... Yeah, but it was... Oh, it was, oh I don't know. It just, anno- <laughs> it just frustrated with me because I thought right. it was a wasted opportunity because I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, oh, this might be quite good. And I was so let down by okay. by just those opening scenes with the where he's in the swamp, and I'm just thinking, oh, really? And the fact that he can't communicate with her because she doesn't speak English, and yet at a critical moment he shouts, run, and she understands exactly what he means. Whereas she should be thinking, huh, what? What does that mean, the, the, that word he's come out with that I don't understand? What does that mean? Oh, he's running off. Why has he run off? I, I think the flaming great dinosaur. No, but he said run, and she started running straight away. She didn't understand him. I stand by the B-movie. I'm now going to hand over to our B-movie expert for his view. Aaron. <laughs> did you like it? I did like it. It was fine. It was a fine 90-minute movie. Um, and I think there's something to be said for just for, for fine. I had this conversation with somebody the other day, but so to, everything now seems to have to be like analysed. It has to be either the greatest movie, something brilliant, or absolute you know, rubbish. And I think we, we need to bring back some sort of disposability about movies. And, you know, Going back to the days when we used to rent a film on a Friday night, watch it, be entertained and then never think of it again. And I think this is this is that kind of of movie. It wasn't brilliant or massively original, but it was fact it was Adam Driver with a space gun blasting dinosaurs and trying to get this little girl to to safety. And I thought it was fine. And to be honest, the the din- when you talk about it being cheap, I thought the dinosaurs looked good. I do think they spent most of the money on the special effects. Yeah. I thought well, I thought we looked perfect, you know, perfectly all right. Yeah, not the equipment. <laughs> At the end, I really wanted them to escape. I'd grown to like them enough that I was invested. I wanted them to to escape and and get away. So that that's and that's all, all I can ask for. I, I yeah, I I thought it was fun, and like I say, ninety minutes was the perfect length for a movie like this. I I I thought it was a lot of fun. So oddly, you mentioned Scream Six just then. And I watched Scream 6 and 65 as a double bill. 
and Scream 6 came first, which made this amazing. <laughs> Maybe I should have watched Scream 6 first. Yeah. I like the Scream films, but Scream 6 is bad. But I thought this was fine. And that was Darren's, that's quoting Darren, fine. It's one of those films, it's like the epitome of, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> like, mm. it's, it's, it's okay. And Adam Driver, like what I said earlier, yeah, two Leslie wouldn't be what it is without Andrew Riseborough. After uh, I was about to say After Earth, I was about to say so that was in my head. The Will Smith film After Earth is like the terrible version of this film, right? Sixty five wouldn't have the budget that it has without Adam Driver, yeah, and it wouldn't be anywhere near as good without Adam Driver. How he actually manages to get the emotion of his. Yeah, his relationship with his daughter and then his relationship with this survivor, like into the B movie, actually gives it some oomph and makes it kind of interesting. You make a really good point there, Phil, because when I watched it, I thought, Driver's making this. If this had been somebody like Chris Pratt, oh, oh, God, it would have been all. Yeah, exactly. Because he'd have been winking at the audience all the way through all of this. That was winking, Graham, so you don't need to cut it. Um, and, you know, it, it would have just been, oh, really, you know, he's not taking it seriously. Why should I invest in this? Whereas Driver brings you into it. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Darren. I think it's a, a Friday night movie with a couple of beers and a curry with your mates, and then you'd forget about it. I did think the last 20 minutes were good. I, I thought that was good and that was fun. And I certainly had the, the best asteroid crashing into a planet since Deep Impact, but it's nowhere near Deep Impact. But yeah, I just thought it was, you know, it was a B movie scoring C and D in a lots of places. You know, must try harder. But yeah, it's it's fine. That's about as as much as I could say about it. I think the problem I had with it was probably built up by the trailer, which does happen with films sometimes. I think if you watch a trailer and you form an impression in your mind, you can be disappointed. And I thought it was going to be Alien meets Jurassic Park. And I thought, wow, you know, you've got two good films and you're going to combine them. So you're going to get the darkness of Alien but with dinosaurs. And I just thought, oh, this could be really, you know, Adam Driver's in it, good actor. It looks dark. It's got dinosaurs. And I thought, yeah, someone's actually come up. Someone's gone in and done the pitch and said, Jurassic Park meets Alien and we'll put a really good central character. And I thought, yep, I want to see that film. And I think that was the problem. I went in expecting that film. And so I was hugely disappointed, I think. And that was, that's, I couldn't get over that concept. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get to the end and think, oh, my God, I've wasted my money much. <laughs> I think I expected more from what I'd, the clips I'd seen in the trailer. I think that's all it was, really. Okay. Phil? I, well, what I was going to say, so you're talking about the dinosaurs and stuff, and, you know, the big dinosaurs are obviously the threat, but for me, the one scene, the, the real one that stuck with me, and I honestly, like, I kind of flinched and sort of was like, oh, as it was happening is, you know, when she's there sleeping in the cave, they, he gets that alert about her life signs or whatever, and he opens yeah. her mouth, and there's, like, something attached into oh, her yeah. tongue. Oh, yeah, that was horrible. Oh, yeah, that's oh, horrible. Yeah. Just, that, was, that was way worse than, like, any of the big dinosaurs, like, crashing into them. It was, it's all right, wasn't it? It's all right. <laughs> right. Okay. Graham, anything else to add? No, no. So, it's wrap-up time. 
in the eyes of the team does 65 trump John Wick in the action stakes. Let's find out what everybody thought was their review film of the month. Deck. I'm going to have to stick with The Whale, I'm afraid. I, d- I did quite like To Leslie, but I think The Whale was more complete. And The Pearl gets a, gets a good nod as well. So I think definitely The Whale, but I think Pearl was probably close follower. Phil. I think we've reviewed them in my order of preference. So John Wick is the film of the month for me. Okay. I'm also going to go John Wick Chapter 4, and I hated Chapter 3. So the fact that this ends up here is quite impressive to me. Darren? Uh, I'm going to go with the one that I picked uh, to review, so I'm going to go with Pearl. Okay. Graham? I'm going to go with John Wick Chapter 4 because I had such a great time with that film. I saw it in a packed IMAX and it was just great fun. But to Leslie would definitely be my runner-up. So, this month's at the Flicks Film of the Month is John Wick Chapter 4. Nice one. Woo, fanfare. (laughs) (laughs) So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the Flicks is in the can. Now, you may be wondering why we haven't heard from listener Frank recently. Seems he's been stuck in the traffic queue in Dover with just a DVD copy of Die Hard 2 for company. Hopefully, we will have some comments from him next month. I have had a message from him. He says Die Hard 2 is not as bad as he remembers and is starting to like it after the 100th viewing. That would never happen in real life, Jeff. Yeah, I bet it would. Cheers, Frank. And to everyone else... Thank you for listening and goodbye. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back.